Hello, I'm David Hepworth. Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear, the latest of hundreds of chats Mark Allen and I have had over recent years, some between ourselves and others with musicians, authors, comedians, and other people we like. If you'd like to help make sure they continue, you might consider becoming a Patreon supporter by visiting patreon.com slash wordinyourear or just by liking or subscribing in whatever way you prefer. On with the show. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Achilles my neighbor has uh, done his Achilles healing. Did, did it actually snap Achilles tendon? No, no, it didn't. I, I, oh, it's got a, it didn't actually snap, thank God. I've got a, I've got a so, sort of suppressed problem with it, playing football. Oh, it just swells if I do an exercise on it. Aren't you a major runner, didn't you? Well, I was. Well, I was a marathon well, runner. Well, you were, well, yeah, and maybe were a marathon runner. I was a marathon Were you? I'm no more. But you have done the marathon. Yeah, but, I'm getting, but I've had to row right back. A year off. Oh, a year off. I've got to talk about that later. Wow. That's, I'm just so. What can you do, American? What the time? There it is. Get him. I was talking to two guys who are doing the Antarctica Marathon, and they're training fantastically. You know, you've probably seen the little adverts on the bus stops. The Natural History Museum have got an Antarctica station, which has a freezer room. Yeah. replicates the thing. they're training in the freezer room oh. so they run around the freezer room for half an hour every morning I bet keeps you makes the question where's the fun in that <laughs> because you know it's just torture part of absolute torture, torture. No, and, and, and one of these guys is a, is a good marathon he's done lots of marathons and it'll take twice as long in Antarctica so up to seven hours you're in your own. You've got to stop and have a thermos of soup every 20 Yeah, but you're also there. you're wearing loads of gear and you can't grip the ice properly. But presumably you're running, you're not just running across a random stretch of Antarctica. They must construct they a circuit. They do construct a figure of eight. They, yeah. they, uh, whatever, the snow bashes or whatever, construct yeah. a figure of eight. And they run if you home. ran fast enough to perspire, would your perspiration freeze, <laughs> freeze yeah. upon your forehead? Yeah, you have to have everything covered. So at this point, you'll be amazed to discover that you're listening to the Word podcast. Seems to strain into question of athletics. Uh, I'm David Hepworth. I'm joined this week by Mark Allen. Uh, wearing the large headphones over there, we have Matt Hall. 
And just joined us from Heathrow Airport, we have Jim White. Hello. Jim, uh, words film correspondent. We're going to start off with a game of Where Have We All Just Been? Now, now, is this know, going to be horribly competitive? I think it probably is. So. <laughs> and we're going to start with Jim. Jim, where have, why have you come from Heathrow Airport? Uh, I've just been in Milan watching Celtic play Milan. Oh. I've got horrible now, Jim, one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give the punchline. Jim, you didn't just go for fun, did you? So you found somebody to pay you to oh, stay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's obviously, yeah. So, God, actually, it's a terrible game. But never mind. It's Milan. It's, yeah. a game of football. <laughs> it's a game exactly. of football, and somebody's paying you to do this. Yeah. Because, you see, there are some people who think, Mark, that you and I have the life of Riley. But we know better. We know regularly, Riley, every week, in the direction of Jim White. every <laughs> week, there is, knock, there is a knock at Jim White's door. Yeah. You know, there's a bedraggled Irish gentleman who introduces himself as Riley and says he'd like his life back. Like, like, <laughs> his wife is well, purloined. Listen, listen, at many a sporting event, I've bumped into you. I've bumped into you at Lords. I've bumped into you at Cheltenham. Yeah, well, it's only because you go to millions of sporting <laughs> events. That's right. Tell, tell people... Yeah, every sporting event. So whatever Dave turns up, it's like, you see him. And also, you... in Jim's defence, it did look, from watching the match on the TV last night, as though lots of the residents of Milan really couldn't be bothered to turn It was incredible. There were 12,000 Celtic fans there. And there were about um, 350 Milanese there, I think. <laughs> oh, good grief. So just explain, Jim, how you put bread on the table. You mainly write about sport. That's right. So I was sent there by the Daily Telegraph to write about this match. It's all right. Didn't you? I've got a feeling you did the whole of the World Cup, didn't you? I did. You did the whole of the World Cup in a camper van, didn't you? In a you? camper van, because yeah. Because it was great. It was actually... It was a fantastic example of the way that new technology has changed journalism. Because I was in a camper van. And... Nowadays, as we are recording around something that looks like a computer mouse but turns out to be a multi-directional microphone. <laughs> and I was in a camper van and I had a laptop and a little device and uh, a digital recorder and I was doing daily audio blogs in broadcasting quality and you send them over the ether from campsites 45 miles outside Frankfurt. It's, it's extraordinary. Fantastic. And, and, and that, you can do that now. And it's you don't have to journalism. attend the game and just watch it on the television. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You never have to leave your, your <laughs> beach <laughs> lounger. <laughs> so Jim's just come back from Milan. Where have you just come back from, Mark? I've, I've just come back from Monte Carlo. As, Monte as Carlo. <laughs> it's a thoroughly entertaining uh, um, uh, morning with the big-nosed Stixman from the Fabs, a.k.a. Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr in Monte Carlo. It wasn't bad. I, you start, I think your first overseas assignment was Nazareth and the Isle of Man, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, Many years ago. I think you slowly worked your yeah, way uh, up. It looked, yeah, it is it's very bizarre in, in, in climate terms, because you leave uh, Monte Carlo, which I have to say is under a cloudless sky. People are wearing shorts. It's, it's really hot. There's palm trees and snow-capped mountains above you. Ringo staying in literally the poshest hotel I've ever seen in my life. To get to it, you go under an underpass, under the motorway, and the underpass is marbled. It is solid <laughs> marble. And there are Greco-Roman pillars. And this is our, under, there's no we're sorry, you know, smell of wee or, or, or graffiti. I mean, it's it's that's Ringo's room. It's Ringo's <laughs> room. You've been there too, haven't you? <laughs> anyway, no. and uh, so they come out of that on the on the easy jet and lumber back into Stansted in the, the damp Essex countryside and the, in the gathering gloom. It was pretty depressing. But at least you've been. But I have to say, no, at least I've been. I had a terrific time, and it was funny. I, there was, the only other person doing an interview was a, a friend of mine from Time Magazine. And noticed they were in the uh, Meridian Plaza Beach Hotel, <laughs> being ferried from the airport with a sedan chair. 
fed very, very expensive uh, risotto and a white wine. I was in uh, a sort of bed and breakfast around the corner, which I noticed I had to pay for myself. <laughs> I tried to leave, and I said, Monsieur, Maman! <laughs> and they presented me with the bill. Oh, so, right. yeah, but uh, so it was quite a different setup. The light jet on the way back, I had a disaster on that. I ordered myself a gin and tonic, a little bit tired, long old day, chatting to Ringo, dying for a gin and tonic. So, a plastic beaker, held it between my, I've got very long legs, you know, difficultly terrible. Held it between my legs, trying to get some glasses out of my top pocket. My iPod fell into the gin and tonic. <laughs> and as I did it, my legs, of course, immediately went together to try and stop this. It was a terrible crack, and I just felt the d- dispiriting sensation of a double gin and tonic soaking into my trousers. <laughs> and I sat that day like a six year old. I literally hate myself. <laughs> you look sharp. I've got sorry, I don't know what I've told you. That's keep, me, keep it just between the two of us. That's, given, not that's given me an excuse to tell oh. the famous story, which I'm sure I've bored you with. Oh, go on. <laughs> Funniest line ever written in the music paper, which I'm, oh, going, I I'm going to ascribe Alan to Jones. Mr. Alan Jones. Oh, fantastic. Alan Jones, many years ago on the Melody Maker, wrote a thing about a, oh, a singularly so. disastrous rock festival. It was never where, worth part. Where the bar and the backstage area were miles so far back from the stage that the, the, the hacks had to be conveyed back and forth on a tractor pulling a, pulling a, a trailer full of hacks. Right? And That's at right. one point, he's building up the picture of how desperately awful this thing is. You know, it's like a rock festival by Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> and and he's, on his, he's, on his way, he's on his way back in the trailer going over a rutted road. He said, it was so unsteady, I spilt the gin and tonic in my right hand. Luckily, it fell into the pint of my left. Which <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I get really great That is the funniest thing <laughs> I've ever Andrew. read. Great man. Any music paper. So you've been to Monte Carlo. I've been to Mali in Western Africa. Did it turn out nice or was it rain? <laughs> turned out, oh, there was just a little bit of rain, actually. Outside of the rain season, there was a bit of rain. Now, Matt, you, you've, been, you've been home to Stoke Newton. Yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been everywhere on Google Earth. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you've been to Mali... In the past, and you've been to the same club, I think, that I went to on Friday night, which is the most extraordinary. Club Hogan? Club Hogan. Hogan, I think, which is this club. (laughs) I was there there doing a story about Tamani Jabati, the the core of Word, for Word, which will appear in February, uh, because there's a new record coming out. But you go to his club where he plays every Friday night if he's in town with his band. And he goes on stage at three o'clock in the morning, never a minute earlier, which is a little bit past my bedtime. But what's unusual about this club, Matt? It don't have no roof, it David. Don't have no roof. <laughs> so this whole yeah. rain thing started to take on a rather sinister. Uh, no, the rain, it wasn't raining that time. But you uh, simply thought, how can you run a club in a residential neighbourhood? And you think, isn't it slightly worse if you've got no roof on the place? You know, so the music is just bouncing. You know, around the entire suburb of uh, Bamako, you know, and people just kind of sleep through it and carry on through it. <laughs> I was conducted through the dark, and boy, it is dark out there. There's no lights in the road outside. There is no. no and, and there is no. Right. I, was I was conducted through the road by Coolie Valley, who works for Tamani, who held my hand, right, because he didn't want me to fall down the same hole that Damon Albarn had fallen. <laughs> <laughs> when he visited the place. Is there a, is there a plaque? A half-beat plaque there. Basically, yeah. it's a sewer. You know, yeah. it's an open sewer. And apparently, you know, the venerable Damon Albarn 
went straight fell down a sewer in the in the past. But anyway, it was uh, you know it was a very exciting trip. You know, only about four days, but uh, you know you have a busy time in Africa on the rare occasions I've yeah. been. It's you know it's just absolutely seething with uh, a with transport apparently very different from here. Well, most of them, no roads, you know, basically. Uh, I mean, I went about 80 miles out of the, out of the, the city on Sunday morning and uh, was conveyed in a four-wheel drive up to see a, a, a kind of battle site, drove halfway up a mountain. Eventually, the four-wheel drive couldn't drive any further, so we're on foot, so we're tramping up the mountain, at which point I'm thinking, I wonder if my phone works out here. At exactly that moment, the phone rang in my, in my pocket. And it was Andrew Harrison of Word magazine ringing up saying, sorry to bother you on Sunday. <laughs> I said, Andrew, you don't realise, you know, <laughs> I'm in Africa. He goes, oh, have you got the coat to the office door? <laughs> <laughs> That's what mobile phones use for, you know. Luckily I had, you know, so he got in the office to retrieve whatever he needed. That's fantastic. The Word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Anyway, we are gathered here, amongst other things, um, to uh, to you know take advantage of the giant pulsing brain that is Jim White. <laughs> yeah, uh, who spent you know a ridiculous amount of this year in a preview theatre and sitting there watching watching movies, great sport. And I know, particularly at this time of year, people uh, people like to like to decide what they'd like people to buy for them, or particularly, actually, listeners to this podcast to buy for themselves. <laughs> Uh, for Christmas, so we asked Jim to to suggest a few DVDs that you might like to buy this Christmas. Over to you, Jim. The the top sellers at the moment. So these are the these are the ones that are heading towards Christmas. Um, starting at the top, Shrek three. Second <laughs> is Harry Potter, Order of the Phoenix, which I think is Harry Potter five. Oh, Third is High School Musical two, oh. and fourth is Pirates of the Caribbean three. So I think a theme is developing. <laughs> Genuinely bad film. Pirates of the Caribbean three is the longest film I've ever seen. Yeah. Not in terms of length of time, but in terms of the amount of time of your life you are wasting. That's very well put. It really is the longest film I've ever is, seen. Is there any? Is, is there any film? End, most critics said at which end. <laughs> that's right. Is there any film that finishes with the number three that is any good ever? There's the odd one with the number two after it. Mm. There is no three. Not sure. Not the house, porkies. I don't know. There must be popsicle. Popsicle. Right, go on. So it's not one of those. It's not, it's not one of those. However, there is a, an interesting little rivalry building up that I think is worth exploring between Casino Royale, the newly, uh, freshly minted Bond. And the Ultimate Bourne collection, which is the three Bourne movies with the Bourne Ultimatum, which is the third I have not seen any of those. Bourne Ultimatum is very, very good. Yeah, I don't know if you saw it at the movies. The, the, the Bourne Ultimatum, which is um, directed by uh, Paul Greengrass, the ex uh, British, well, he's still British, but the uh, documentary film. Oh, uh, the maker, guy who did the, the 9 11. United 93. Yeah, I didn't realize. Uh, and he has taken this very um, intense handheld camera technique that he used in the United 93 for the Bourne Ultimatum. And it is very fast, very, very fast. And in fact, I don't know if anyone saw it at the movies, people 
if you were too close to the screen in the movies, were actually feeling sick. No, motion no, sickness. No, like, People I'm actually sure. felt motion sickness because the thing is... So it's not always, always handheld. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know what it's going to be like on the small screen, but be warned, don't sit too close to the small screen. It is, however, terrifically exciting. And in a sense, it is the first proper American riposte bond. He is a hero who goes through all these things. As you know, he's played by Matt Damon, and he's a CIA operative who has got long-term amnesia. Um, however, um, this doesn't seem to stop him being able to beat people up, kill them with their bare hands, remember or indeed, to that. remember how to hack into computer systems, etc., etc. At the moment, we all know what happens with long-term amnesia. We've seen you it. Find your large. canoe. How's that going? John Darwin. Your wife's your wife living in Panama, isn't uh, uh, In fact, you've. She's cashed in the life insurance and you've been, <laughs> you've been yeah. buying property with her in Panama. <laughs> what you're not doing and is you're running around with, with, your, yeah. with your bare hands. So, um, <laughs> I'm not sure how authentic it is, but it's still tremendously. So exciting. Matt Damon, the Bourne things. It's a good little collection, that. It's all three of them. And Casino uh, of which Royal? the third is the best. Casino Royal is terrific. It's fantastic. Uh, it? I really, really enjoyed it. You enjoyed it, didn't you? Well, the, the, Daniel Craig? The, 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 the latest Bond. I saw... Uh, not only did I go and see it twice, but I took my whole family and my wife, who never goes to see these kind of films, and my 22-year-old and 24-year-old sons, and we absolutely... He joins that select company of male actors, Daniel Craig. I kind of fancy. I do you know, too. It's him and George Clooney. Mm. I can see why people fall in love. I with fancy. Them. I fancy I'm not even gay more at all. After seeing the Jonathan Ross show, I don't know if you saw that. He was preceded by Jack D and Russell Brand. And I, you've got to feel for actors because I mean their job, to be honest, is to learn lines and look fabulous and to pout and do superhuman things. It isn't necessarily to be effervescent and, and hilarious and spontaneous. And he was and he was in just such a state that time he came on. Russell Brand decided he fancied him and had spent the whole time in the green room trying to sit on his knee. I mean, that would be <laughs> that would be disconcerting for anybody, Dave. But anyway, yeah, he smouldered and uh, you know said very little. Of, He's fantastic. I mean, he, uh, he was a reluctant one, wasn't he? Because I think yeah. he realised that it would transform his life yeah. and that he couldn't go in the pub, he couldn't walk down the street anymore. Um, everybody would be uh, coming up to him saying, you know, my name's White, Jim White, etc., etc. <laughs> yeah. They probably wouldn't be saying that, they'd be using their own name. But, um, but on the he, other hand, he would be... He is perfect. And showered with rubies and... Well, indeed, and, yes, and, 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 and ladies. Yeah, uh, I would imagine ladies. Should he be remotely interested? If he's, like he might be. If he's, if he's, if I not heterosexual, Dave. I don't know. If he's not moved, if he's not moved <laughs> So I'm going to buy that, actually. I'm going to buy Casino Royale. Casino Royale. Because I've seen it, but I'm, I want to see it again. The Bourne Collection, I think, an, an interesting comparison between the two, because both of them, you know, a lot of people said that Bond was, was, was dead in the water as a franchise. It was boring, it was dull, it was old-fashioned, etc. He has completely blown that critique out of the water. It's transformed it, made it very sharp, very fast. And you have to think, probably had to do it, because otherwise, with Bourne around, it wasn't going to survive. I think Bourne has kept it in his I wasn't aware of that, that it, it upped the ante in quite such a fashion. Yeah. Now, we're also going to chip in with our DVDs that we suggest people buy for Christmas. Matt, you're nodding. Yes. Go on. What um, do you think we should buy? Well, just because I know what your suggestion is going to be. Oh. I know that, and, and, and I've mithered everybody this year about uh, 
loads of different HBO series. Neither. My, I was just going to say, it's what my mother used to say. I've known neither for a long time. But, but the one that, I'm, that I really like, because it's kind of different to all the other HBO series, is um, Entourage, which is the uh, tale, and it's now into its third series has been released uh, on DVD, but series one and two you can get on a box set um, and uh, combined. And um, it's the tale of a Hollywood uh, celeb film star and his entourage who include who are all like his old school friends and that his failed actor elder brother his um, manager and his driver stroke weed carrier and but the, the start of the show is the fantastically disgusting agent who he employs <laughs> by the name of Harry Gold who really is the most despicable character in what way is he despicable it's just, he has no saving graces at all he is, he is the supreme agent <laughs> he, he's a my favourite line at the moment is where he uh, somebody cuts him up in a car when he's driving down a Hollywood Boulevard. He screams out of the window, is that how they drive in Tiananmen Square, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> From which I assume the woman is of Chinese extraction. <laughs> and this is in an aside while he's carrying on a conversation on his mobile phone. He made his point, didn't he? <laughs> so is this something you can get in the box? You can get, uh, you can get series one and two combined box set. I noticed on Amazon today checking before it came out that it's a very reasonable reduction. It's kind of 20 odd quid. So yeah. And the other good thing about it is it's not hour long episodes. Oh, they're right. American half hours, so they're only about 20 minutes. Right, right. Is it based on anyone doing that? Uh, Presumably well, everyone's lining up to say it's based on... No, there are some fantastic um, cameos, but actually the exec producer is uh, Mark Wahlberg. And Marky Mark. Marky Mark. And apparently it is based on, uh, I think, on, at the end of the second uh, series uh, extras on the DVD, it's Wahlberg interviewing all the cast and the people that the cast is based on. So yeah, it's it's based on his experiences when he first. Uh, so that's that's entourage. entourage. That's uh, that's Ooh, a Matt Hall suggestion. Yeah. All right, back to you, Jim. What else you got? Got the soppy. Um, the last King of Scotland. I I um, really enjoyed when no it was soppy. It's, it's it's not soppy. Um, and um, it's interesting. Uh, uh, James McAvoy, who's the the lead in this part, I've never really liked him as an actor. I've always found him a little bit smarmy. Um, and he's in Atonement. Um, which is very soppy, um, and I didn't like him at all. He plays a, a kind of um, an upper crust, well, not an upper crust, but an educated Englishman. But his very kind of odd chippiness is rather brilliant in Last King of Scotland because it's it's this hedonistic guy who who, who goes over to Uganda and gets involved with Amin um, and is looking for a bit of a laugh, looking for a bit of a bit of fun, and of course it all goes hideously bad. <laughs> <coughs> it, I thought it was a rather good film and a rather good performance. Yeah, I've seen that. that. I've seen that. And what else? Hot Fuzz, which... Um, oh, no, right. this is the Simon Pegg. No, I thought it was very good. Simon Pegg's uh, follow-up to his zombie uh, movie. Um, and, and, and it's a sort of... Um, it's an homage, I think. He really enjoys those kind of shoot-em-up uh, cop buddy films. Um, but he set it in rural Gloucestershire. And I think that's rather touching though, because it's him, his friend Nick Frost, isn't it? Yeah. And I think they genuinely lived in a flat together. They're really old. old in Crouch End. Crouch End. That's what the first yeah. film, what the, the zombie thing was based on. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. And they obviously had that, they were just, this is just an extension of what they used to do. Uh, you know, teenagers probably just sitting around watching those kind of movies on the telly. And a lot of it's this sort of send up of these slow motion things with people just firing off. 
you know, the kind of people who, who refer to police pistols as cannons, you know, it's that kind of lock and load, FHM <laughs> thing, you know. And I think it's rather touchy, actually. I think it's a great film. And there is, there's a really good buddy-buddy relationship yeah. at the heart of it as well. I mean, it, it, it parodies those, those odd couple relationships. But it does it by actually superseding them. I think it's rather better than a lot of those Hollywood films. They, there is a genuine love between those two guys. Absolutely. That comes out. It was set in Gloucestershire. Yeah. It was actually shot in Wells. Um, and I know this because I was speaking to um, Clark Collis, uh, a writer... Uh, uh, Oliver Parish. Oliver Parish, who now uh, works in the States for Entertainment Weekly. And I said, to him, you know, have you seen any good films recently? And he... He said, yes, I've seen something, it's just something very weird has happened. He just went to see Hot Fuzz, but he knew it was shot in Wells because he had, uh, went to Wells Cathedral School. So he came out of the uh, viewing theatre saying to the woman, that is the weirdest experience of my life. That is very Seeing a film shot around where I went to school. Have I, have I bored you with the story of David Peace? No. Oh, this is... David Peace, the hot... English novelist, recently finished, uh, recently covered uh, by uh, featured the, uh, in Word. Ever topical word, um, and, uh, his, and his thing about Brian Clough is being made into a movie. Made that, that Damned United, which is the story of uh, Brian Clough's tenure at Leeds United, has been made into a movie. But prior to this, his first breakthrough books were a series set in Yorkshire in the 70s. And I think they're called something like 75, 76, 78, or something like that, about the year. And... Um, the first one is about is a terrible murders and carnage taking place in Yorkshire. And I start reading it. And I, as I read it, I realise this guy, David Peace, comes from the same one-horse town in Yorkshire that I come from. And he set this book entirely in the one-horse town that I come from with actual addresses, pubs, schools... You know, so it's like somebody's taken your past and kind of haunted it. If you no, can imagine, very, it's because you never happen. knew were going on. Were in fact, yeah. no, they weren't. They're, they're, yeah. He's, he's kind of thought, God, I missed everything. It's, he's, not, it's not a fiction, David. It's a documentary. <laughs> 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 but imagine somebody taking wherever you grow up and set the most harrowing uh, story against the background of the familiar places of your of your growing up. Places you go to, coffee bars, shops, or whatever. It's absolutely eerie. I'm not sure I could read any 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 more books in the series. It's extraordinary stuff. What's he called? David Peace. It's uh, he's the man this year. I think if anybody wants a, a book for Christmas, that damned United uh, is an extraordinary thing about Brian Clark. I actually uh, I, I occasionally do talks uh, uh, to schools, and uh, I did a talk to a school in Amersham the other day where the teacher had asked me if I would talk about sports and literature. And, of course, Damn United is the finest piece of writing, uh, imagined writing on football there is. And I thought, well, I'll just read a quote from the Damn United stuff. There's not a single quote you that can you read can read to school, school kids. That's, no, that's, 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 that's it. That's it. You can also say that. No, it's absolutely extraordinary. A magazine, a website, a podcast, the word. So, Mark. What uh, DVD well, would, uh, I, I, would no, you buy yourself for Christmas? What would I buy myself? I would buy myself, and I would intend to do so, actually, uh, Little Miss Sunshine, which Jim might have to help me out because I haven't seen it for a, a month or two. But all I can remember, apart from loving this incredibly sweet, poignant, very affecting, terribly funny film, is, it, is it's a brilliant cast of characters. The story, without ruining anything, 
is that the little girl, who I think is about five or six years old, wants to be entered into a, what they call beauty pageants in the South of America, which is a sort of song and dance, you can imagine. Shirley Temple. Shirley Temple is precisely right. And with the cast of characters, they set off in a, in a, a minibus, a VW microbus, which hilariously has something wrong with the gearbox. It can't stop. Once push started, it can't stop. So if it wants to get off at a petrol station, they have to jump back and run along behind the jump back over And much uh, hilarity ensues. But the cast is basically the mum and dad, who themselves are quite eccentric. Uh, the girl, the brother, who is the real fulcrum of this, who's going through a kind of gothic stage where he's decided to take a vow of silence. Oh, right. Do you remember? And he won't speak. And so, you know, if he wants someone to ask him a question at supper or something, he will write his response on a piece of paper and hold it up, which becomes incredibly good. We, we've and all had the teenagers. Oh, we've all had teenagers. That's quite familiar, actually. I just wish they'd written something down. That would have helped. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, and the final piece of this complicated jigsaw is the uh, formerly, well, still heroin-addicted grandfather who, who turns his toes up halfway through. But anyway, oh, the wife's gay brother. And the which one? Wife's gay brother. Oh, the wife's gay brother, of course. Yeah, it's another key um, a, a feature in this movie. Because the and weird thing is, near the, the end, the thing turns out to have, it's quite interesting reflection on the difference between American films and British films. That it has quite a serious undertone at the end of this. Oh, it does, yeah. That, you know, it's rather questions the motives of people run these pageants and attend them or put their children in them, whatever. If it was made by a British director, it'd be a searing indictment of, you know, the, the, you know, the beauty pageant business. But actually, being American, it's quite light. Very light. It's, it's a fantastic it twist, twist, though. Yeah, that twist is totally unexpected. When I saw the film, I assumed... Well, no, I'm not going to say no, no, we I assumed one thing, thing and... Absolutely. So did I. Well, I got it all completely wrong. And, uh, well, I watched it with the whole family, and um, lovely film. and everybody yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it. So, family film, Christmas, Christmas <laughs> night, Christmas night. No, no more Malcolm Wise. Yeah. You know, it's a family film as well because it will replicate your own family. There's someone who's not not speaking. Uh, there's someone who's trying to commit suicide about 15 seconds. Oh, yeah, there's yeah. a heroin addict yeah. granddaddy. There's a there's, there's a, a way father who's so desperate yeah. because his business is failing. His business is failing. <laughs> Exactly like there is a way in for every member of a multi-generational audience. Is there a fire? As I, as I think, actually, there is, uh, well, we're on this particular tip with, uh, with the Italian job, which I still have uh, for Christmas Day. And when we have uh, elderly parents and uh, small children, that's the film that you slap on. And there's, there's some part of it that everybody loves. My father particularly used to love the appearance of Noel Coward. Mr. Bridger. <laughs> Mr. Bridger. She was a lady And, uh, yeah, and all my sons would just wait for, you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. It's a bit where uh, Charlie steals the roast chicken, of course. They're going through the piazza in the minis. We always liked it because my brother's name is Dominic. And, of course, there is a character, the character in who only was supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Yeah, he's supposed to. He's called Dominic. <laughs> oh, it's a classic. So when you're full of sprouts and, you know, collapsing on the got a bit of a headache. Yeah, you know, I, no, you don't want the five o'clock Christmas day. Yeah, that's what you need. Jim, what else you got? Um, this is a, a shamelessly uh, nostalgic for those days when you used to um, watch movies with your parents and your dad. Well, my dad certainly was just absolutely uh, a fan of James Stewart. He loved James Stewart. Mm. James Stewart could do no wrong. There is a James Stewart collection oh, which has Harvey, Rear Window and It's a Wonderful oh. Life. Oh. Now, you cannot oh. argue with that. Oh. Rear Window. Rear Window. Absolutely. Rear Window. Fantastic. If there's anybody listening to this podcast who hasn't seen Rear Window, watch it tonight. You know, and then, and then, and then if there's anything sleep. wrong with it, ring me at the office, <laughs> yeah, and we will. And I will come around, and I will, and I will buy it. <laughs> <off> <laughs> you, okay, 
Then you have got Sam Adams. Sorry? What a boxer. I suppose so. I've never seen Harvey. Um, oh no, Harvey's terrific. He in Harvey, uh, uh, Stuart plays a alcoholic who believes that he is being followed around by a six foot rabbit, and he can communicate with the six foot rabbit. And it's a tremendously um, tender relationship he has with the rabbit. Of course, no one else can see the rabbit, but it is a beautiful, That's a bold beautiful idea for the time. It was. Now you're, t- about you're talking about uh, watching films with your dad. You see, now I think well, the world of watching films on DVD, uh, particularly Christmas has changed massively now. But most of the time, it's not a, it's not a, a social family thing. Am I the only person that does well, that? Well, I... I, I yeah, because you've now got the average house full of DVD players in computers, you know, in bedrooms or whatever. And the tendency is to wander off on your own and watch things at your own speed. Is that true? Well, the thing that bugs me about watching DVDs, when we were watching... Uh, I was watching a DVD with my wife, my good lady wife, last night. Was it took about... It was an American TV series, 50 minutes, 55 minute episode. It took about an hour and a half. Because they were, oh, would you just mind pausing it? Oh, phone call. Oh, I'm just going to go and get changed. I've got a wave, Dave. I've got a wave, Frank. It's in our house. You know, we have screenings. And we have a screening on Sundays at, you know, about 7 o'clock. We have whatever it is. We had, you know, waiting for Guffman. It was, in fact, last week. And our loan names are And it's properly done. And you have a bit of supper. And then we have a short beforehand, which is something like a, (laughs) uh, a Simpsons. Or one of my kids well, once found. Right, yeah, one of my kids yeah. once found uh, my appearance uh, on Jim Will Fix It in 1984 when I was the editor of Smash Hits. Me, uh, some firemen, a uh, policeman dressed in a 19th century uniform, and a pop singer at the time called Marilyn were the guests on Jim Will Fix It. It is, to be fair, quite a funny bit of film. It lasts three minutes. And I've just. And it, well, it just occurs to me. If it just occurs to me, when, when this is over, I'm going to have a look on YouTube <laughs> and see if that is there. Oh, and post it on the I Word would, website. I Mind if it was wordmagazine.co.uk. Don't miss it. He calls me Mr. Music always. It's so funny, the whole thing. It's just, you know, is this girl? I can't possibly impersonate him actually, but he's a big old cigar and stuff. What are we talking about? We're talking about having screenings or whether you want to. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. The point is, I'm really, I'm trying to get away from that whole thing, people watching. You have a screening and you have a bowl of Werther's originals have passed, the lights go up, and then the big picture comes on. Logs on fire, and I think it's quite. You see, I don't think. Well, I don't know. I, I I can't do it. You see, if you go in with the box set, if you're going to watch it with the good lady wife or the the offspring or whatever, you have to negotiate a time when you're all available, and then you have to do that thirteen times. Well, it can't be done in the average busy household, can it? The only way is for Dad to sneak up upstairs, you know, pretend he's got some work to do or whatever, and just and just he's start watching, watching it. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, series. You see, box set viewing—it's very different, isn't it? Jim? Well, I, 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 was just, I was just considering my, my father's affection for James Stewart, and of course, in in, in the days when he and I were uh, a sort of coming together and watching these things. You had no choice. It was whatever One was telly. on the TV. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you discovered things in a way you almost can't nowadays. Yeah. I mean, you know, my movie education came from Saturday and Sunday afternoons pouring with rain or when my dad was watching it, you know, and, and you, you would happen ac- across things in a way that you don't now. It's much more selective and, of course, it's much more fragmented. Yeah, well, the thing that I've watched that I would recommend anybody looking to buy themselves something for Christmas, the thing that I've watched recently, um, which is one of the most extraordinary pieces of television I've ever seen, was The Wire, which we've written about in Word. In yeah, the extensively. Hands. 
Uh, and I've seen series one and series two, and I can't wait to see series three. Uh, you've seen it, Matt, haven't you? Yeah, and four. Oh, we've seen Matt way ahead. And, uh, and the wire. written four yet? Or, I mean, uh, the fourth has just started. Fourth has just, fourth has just gone out on TV, and the fifth is starting in the States now. So it's set in Baltimore. It's kind of cops and robbers, but both the cops and robbers, you see the story from both sides' point of view. And, uh, you know, the man who wrote it, he was slightly inclined to overclaim on its behalf, says that it is a portrait of the American city. And I think he's quite right. It's true. I, I have no interest in drugs at all, but I understand the drug business far more by watching series one of The Wire than, than, than I've ever before. And, you know, it really shows you lots of things happening in society, you know, culturally, economically. And it's just an absolutely extraordinary piece of television, isn't it, Matt? It's fantastic. And the great thing about it is, as each story is kind of 12 episodes, rather than the normal cop series where it's at, at the start of the hour, the crime takes place, by the end of the hour, all the bad guys are locked up in prison. This rolls over 12 episodes, and no one's really caught by the end of it. But it does actually repay on a DVD going back and watching it again because people crop up in yeah. the first episode and sometimes don't reappear until halfway through season three and you're like, ah, all right, okay. It's fantastic. It's extraordinary. Way. And it also casts loads of real people, which is something fairly unusual in American television. And the two lead actors playing American characters are British actors. And you would not know. I didn't know until I read about it afterwards. It's absolutely extraordinary piece of work. Something Matt said there. Do you think that people are now making films for DVD box sets? Definitely. Well, I don't think. I, I think it's part of the revenue model. No, no, no. If no. you I'm like, thinking about intellectually. You're oh, talking right. about you don't really realise this character exists until you've gone to there, so you then rewind. Well, that opportunity doesn't exist if you don't have DVD. No, I suppose not. I suppose no. not. Um, yeah, I think it's just part of their calculation nowadays when they're, when they're making anything, that if it's successful, it will be watched repeatedly and it will be really examined. I know nowadays, uh, even closer to home, somebody at BBC Enterprises were telling me nowadays that when Ricky Gervais goes off and shoots The Office or whatever, or when he did The Office, they give them a digital video camera to, to shoot their own stuff as they're going along. With a view to the DVD, you know, the extras oh, right, are yeah, factored right, in right. right from the start. Well, it's like got the, to be the extras on ants and stuff, isn't it? The animated uh, outtakes, yeah. which is such a brilliant, ironic point, isn't it? <laughs> that they draw all the things that went wrong. Yeah. Well, we were talking about this on a podcast recently, about the idea that, that it's the advent of DVD that's allowed people to make a completely different kind of film. You know, that is so complicated and so deep and so full of cross-reference that actually the hope is that you're sufficiently beguiled by seeing it once to want to see it four times. When yeah. suddenly, yeah. something like Donnie Darko. Yeah. Donnie Darko, yeah. best example, exactly. And then rather like listening to um, Trout Mask Replica by Captain Beefheart's Magic Band. It's only on the fourth uh, listen that mm-hmm. the scales fall from your eyes and all starts to make some sort of sense. Or you take it down. Or you take it down and say, yes, think I'm over that. Or your girlfriend says, I have you got have you got bridge over trouble water? <laughs> I'm leaving you. Uh, Jim, what you got? What else? That just because it was, you know, it was a bit of British telly that I really, really loved is the two uh, series of Life on Mars, which are out on DVD and superb in every way. 
Um, although my uh, love of them slightly diminished uh, when I went to see American Gangster, when I realised that the portrayal of the 1970s on British TV is all done in about three square inches because they have to come so tight on every character in case they catch a satellite dish on the wall right. behind them oh, or whatever. Yeah, or somebody yeah, on the mobile. American Gangster, well where American Gangster is so huge, the 1970s there has been recreated on a massive scale. Oh, they've completely re- rebuilt uh, parts of Harlem in shabby 1970s chic. Uh, because it is massive um, and, and life on Mars suddenly looked incredibly constricted but I still enjoyed it I, you know, I really Gene Hunt um, <laughs> there must be a rhyming slang yeah, so, <laughs> he's one of the greats well, you know talking about rhyming standard you know what Stephen Fry said the other day he was asked on a radio programme his definition of countryside he said surely that means killing Piers Morgan uh, <laughs> I know I know <laughs> Sorry, anybody who's driving a car. They won't get it. Genuinely funny, isn't it? Oh, that's <laughs> so you, now that now that John Sim, our Life on Mars, has presented us with our award, Sim, I think we ought to watch it, Mark. We, we will. Just, <laughs> just as a way of saying Mark, thank you. respect. I absolutely. Uh, you can, surely you can ring him up and uh, ask for your own personal science coffee. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure I could. Okay, Life on Mars. That's uh, so. That's that's it for. Uh, Loads of suggestions there for, uh, for films you could uh, suggest to the kids or somebody that they buy for you or buy for yourself uh, this Christmas. Just got a few topical issues we've got to whip through quickly, chaps. Come on. I want to know your response. Today, this just in, today, that somebody's proposing, a load of rock bands, big rock bands and their managers are proposing to set up the Resale Rights Society because as we've talked about in the past on this podcast, they would like to get a piece of the huge amount of money that is currently generated by people selling on tickets for big rock shows, right? It's come quite close to home right today, I think, where Bruce Springsteen announces he's playing three football stadiums, Old Trafford, Arsenal, Stadia, sorry, Arsenal and um, the Millennium Stadium, not football stadium, uh, in Cardiff. Um, And, you know, and tickets are just flying. And Led Zeppelin on Monday. Led Zeppelin on Monday. I'm told that the Spice Girls tickets... London have a resale value. That means money that's been made by reselling them are £1.5 million. Okay? So basically, these people are saying, if all this money's been generated by my tickets, why am I not making money out of it? I'd love to know how you're going to police this. Well, what they're proposing. Who are selling those tickets? Who wants tickets? Buy or sell? No, what they're proposing. I'd love to see that guy trying to put a bit back to the public. What they're proposing to do is to kind of tax. Ebay and all the various ticket swapping, ticket selling sites, so they pay a kind of levy or something, all right. so that they get something back. Which, of course, being the entertainment industry, they always say, we're going to invest in young <laughs> up-and-comings. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it's not going to go Pink Floyd's bank account. <laughs> young up-and-coming talent like Led Zeppelin. Yes. <laughs> right. But, you know, we keep coming back to this on this podcast. You know, I don't know what can be done about this, because... I, I'm interested, Jim, in your point of view on this, you know, from your sports background. Has anybody effectively stopped touting or selling on of tickets? No, and the problem is it's, it's the democratisation of touting in that anyone can become a tout because of the web. And actually, in sport, and I'm sure it's the same in music, but I don't know, in sport, there's a huge... It's not just touting. There's a huge new market in fraud, internet fraud, so that you set yourself up on the internet as 
a legitimate-looking agency with, with a, a, a decent professional-looking website, and you say, um, I can get you a World Cup rugby, uh, rugby World Cup final ticket uh, for £800, and, and there are these punters in the city for whom oh, swallow half it, yeah, yeah. pay £800 yeah. once in a lifetime experience, send their credit card details off, and this never existed. It wasn't even as if there was a ticket there in the first place. Oh, really? And of course, it's a website, but it looks good, and there's absolutely no way you can get hold of these people or find out. And um, they are doing that hand over fist. Any big sporting event will be accompanied by... There will be dozens and dozens of people spinning around outside the stadium, being told to meet the the towns outside Gate 15 oh, and arriving there. There's Horrific nobody there. They've got nobody, any way of getting there. And if you arrive very late at a sporting event, a big sporting event now, there are always dozens, and I mean dozens of people, who have paid top dollar oh, for tickets that never yeah. existed. Mm. So, and in a fairly you know, aggravated state, I should imagine. Very yeah. aggravated. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, you know, as somebody, whenever I go to see Manchester United, I can never get a ticket because I've not got a season ticket. So I always uh, end up giving the gentleman waiting out Luma, outside Luma Curry's fish and chip shop <laughs> some hard I don't think that I'd, I'd really feel very comfortable asking them if a proportion of that was going to go. <laughs> no, no I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're going to affect those people at all. <laughs> I don't think you affected those people at all. It's talking about the websites. Do you think we'll ever see season tickets for gigs? Do you think we'll ever see? You know, I'm a member of Wembley well, you Arena. Know, you are, you are already. Though. Wembley, Morris, you are. Yeah. Well, Morris is playing six nights at the Roundhouse. I think in January, something like January the 12th to the 18th. And there are certain tickets that are for all six nights, aren't there? So, so you can buy if you like no. I mean, okay, Maybe. If you've got the corporate tickets at Wembley, you, 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 you get the cup final, you get England uh, internationals, and you get Muse. Right. Yeah. And, um, and oh, you mean buying tickets at a venue? Well, I don't know whether you... The, to prove all, that you were a, a well, kind of legitimate music lover. Like, uh, at the Roundhouse as well, when they relaunched the Roundhouse, they um, auctioned it off. They auctioned degrees of the Roundhouse off. Well, it didn't auction, but sent it to, to commercial sponsors. And so you could own, a, you could buy a degree of the, the 360 degrees that made at the Roundhouse. And that gives you the right, I think I'm correct, two tickets to every event. Well, and presumably if you sold them on, they'd know. Yeah, I guess. Or but you also get into the members' bar. And yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Albert Hall system's been like that for him, isn't it? You can get a box at the Albert Hall. Well, lots of corporations have a box. And they're ringing I up. And no, I'm just, well, wondering, I'm just wondering, wondering about individuals, whether individuals will end up doing this. Because basically what's happening at the moment is loads of people are applying for four tickets and then selling two of them. It would never have occurred to them to do it in, in the old dispensation. Well, somebody suggested on the, on the Word website uh, this week, wordmagazine.co.uk, said, why, why not just sell for cash on the day? So don't sell tickets. If you want to come and see Led Zeppelin, go and queue, OK? You can buy one ticket, cash, cash money, you get straight in, gig straight away afterwards, you know. Be chaos, I'm sure, but yeah. I think that would take away some of the uh, <laughs> security and enjoyment of it the might evening. It might do, might do. Okay, this also... I'm going to see Led Zeppelin on a boat with my friend Ed Volume from The Guardian. He's going down to the O2 on a boat. There's a boat we can get down to. Oh, you're going, going on a boat? We're going on the boat. We're, we're going to see him from the boat. No, no, we're going to buy a boat. So Monday you're night. going on Monday? Monday, yeah, yeah. I think we'll do next podcast on Tuesday, then Mark can report on, yeah, on I'm doing the, I'm, I'm Word Magazine's correspondent. I paid my £135 for my ticket. Oh, well, we look forward to that. So there we are. Now, it's funny. Yeah, well, that's 10% of something. It's the chat. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, that's what Was I it 20 it million people have tried to get tickets? 20 Yes, if anybody wants one. 
I tell you what, a couple of hundred sobs. <laughs> also today, that a new a project. Hurry, hurry. <laughs> a new project has been launched in the city of Rotherham. Oh, just, just uh, to encourage childhood literacy, yeah. fronted by Dolly Pop. Yeah. She chimes with today's youth. She? <laughs> in, intellectual in Rotherham. I mean, uh, or, uh, or as I'm sure she described it, Rotherham. Fantastically, did you see? Uh, she she had a press conference uh, to launch this in Rotherham, and she came up on stage and she said, "It's so wonderful to be here at Rotherham." And someone said, uh, "Actually, Dolly, I'm still in London." Oh, am I? <laughs> Oh, no, I'm not entirely sure whether no. uh, she. Yes, that is. I, I, I'm not entirely sure Dolly is uh, uh, to the full grips with the geography. I, th- I, th- I think I've seen Dolly Parton on stage, and I, I don't think she knew where she was at all. You know, it's like that wonderful, wonderful bit in, uh, in Kevin Cosner's Robin Hood when they arrive on the, on the shores of Dover, don't they? Having, having rowed over from France, they say, "We'll be in Nottingham tonight." <laughs> <laughs> well, you wouldn't be in Nottingham tonight, even the twenty-first century. <laughs> <laughs> Twelve oh six, or whatever it is. And finally, this just in, also, that uh, Geoffrey Owen Jones, a film professor from the Rochester Institute of Technology, died, we just heard, he died in November the 10th, and he is the Mr. Jones the Bob Dylan wrote Ballad of a Thin Man about. Something That's a fantastic here. story. You don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? But there was another mate, Mr. Jones, and anyone who read the, reads the melody, or read, sorry, read the melody maker, would remember Max Jones, their beret sporting uh, jazz correspondent. And Max Jones always used to claim, uh, rather like the conversation we were having about the Asians earlier on, of course, that it was about him. But anybody called Jones would say it was about them. But apparently, but there, apparently Max Jones was there on the same day. So yeah. in 1965, day before Bob Dylan plays Newport Folk Festival, he uh, is surrounded by a bunch of press, included amongst whom are is this um, intern at Time magazine called Jones, and also Max Jones from The Melody Maker. He sends away Max Jones with a flea in his ear, doesn't even see him, and somebody else, but sees the intern. And, you know, being faced by the usual questions, why, you know, all of which have start with the word why, which he refuses to answer, um, he just decided he'd had enough of the press... And uh, and wrote uh, Ballad of a Thin Man about it. But, Have you uh, ever seen the, the the Scorsese documentary about Dylan's yeah, time? There's yeah. a one month bit where he's in Paris, in fact, and somebody asks him the question: uh, How many folk singers are there? He says, "What he goes, 126." Yes. <laughs> no, no, I tell you, 137. He looks really pleased with himself. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so anyway, 40 years later, uh, Mr. Jones goes to meet his maker, and uh, that's nearly it for the podcast. For this week, but it just remains for us to finish with the HORA, the hoary old rock anecdote, which uh, concerns the legend, not the legend, it's the truth. Isn't oh, it? truth. Are you talking about, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about having taken, taken counsel from our legal friends, <laughs> every bit of this. Every bit of this. <laughs> I can start this off because hey. I, I was told by various old pals of mine at the BBC the story, which I think. I suggested this at the time. I think a very good piece for Sunday Times magazine. I thought it was a brilliant uh, collision of the old and new world of the BBC. This must have happened in about 1988. It was happened in 1991. Oh, 1991, right. Well, there was a property disaster in about 89, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, which is to do with the story. But I, I thought that the old world of the BBC was so brilliantly um, uh, crystallised by the, uh, the, the, the figure of Whispering Bob Harris. 
a fantastic old fellow with a, um, a wonderful record collection. He's very old school and came to, uh, and still does come to his uh, record programs with a box full of records he's mostly bought from the attic and plays them. And the new school was represented at the time by a guy called Bruno Brooks, who was, um, I don't know how to put it really, he was not, not the brightest spark, was he? Not the brightest lamp in the street. There, the there were pairs of short planks who used to get better marks from back to the school than, than Bungalow Brooks. So called, David, if I remember, because there was nothing up top, was there? So Bungalow. <laughs> <laughs> it was famously and proudly said that he didn't own a record. He didn't own a record, <laughs> yeah. I was proud of this. Anyway, Bungalow, uh, Bungalow, I think, bought, if I remember rightly, bought a flat. No. Am I right? Bob Harris there you go. bought a flat off Bungalow. Yeah, that's right. right. I was going to say he sold it to Bob. And yeah, Bungalow bought, yeah. lent him the money to buy it because yeah. he took it shifted, right? Yeah. Properties go, you know, decline. He bought a know. flat for £125,000. And, and, right. and then, massive changes at Radio 1, Bob Harris loses his slot so he's got no visible means of support, really, and he owes this money, right? He moves out of the house as fast as he can, right. but he still owes the money. So he's living somewhere out in the country with his wife. At Oxford. And first thing in the morning, the bailiffs arrive. Yeah. Right? Well, acting on instructions of the court, as at the behest of Bruno Brooks or whatever, who wants to get his money back... And they decide that they're going to take away the only item of value, right? Which is... Whispering Bob's record collection. And do you know how many there were? I don't, no go on. 33,000 of them. I don't know if they counted that specially. You know, 33,000 including all the kind of... Yeah, you're talking about vinyl albums? CDs, records, that I don't know, singles, whatever. And it ended up going to court. Well, it was a negative equity thing, wasn't it? He bought the flat for a certain amount of money. And, and, and the value of it, he borrowed half that from Bruno. In A year later, it had halved yes. the value. So basically, he was paying back the amount of money that he'd now completely lost because of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the sort of property crash of so, the late 80s. So the court case, and it does go to court, hinges upon this central argument. Are records the tools of a DJ's trade, like a plumber's, you know, whatever, uh, or are they simply something that, you know, you don't need at all? And so the two worlds of Radio 1, as Mark was talking about, you know, met in the women's Fantastic. <laughs> because, of course, and Bungalow's court were arguing that, tell you what, I just rock up ten minutes yeah. before. They give me a run of the fader. And somebody barks something in my headphones and tells me to play my new single by the Thompson Twins. I've never heard of the Thompson Twins. You've never heard of the Thompson Twins, but that's what I play. And then I read out the piece of paper some interesting pop facts about them. I mean, that's broadly. Whereas Where's Bob is standing up saying, you know, I need the Thomas Jefferson K third album. Yeah. You know, because one's very five years, I might want to play track 12. Uh, I'm having a special Capricorn Records celebration anniversary <laughs> night. How can I do that without building the, the programme? They used to they used the expression building. Which, again, that was foreign, wasn't it, to Radio 1 at that time? You had to building a record. You know, what you basically do is throw in a load of files and, you know. So they each had a load of witnesses, argued the case. Who won, Jim? Oh, God, you're going to say Bruno Brooks? No, I'm not going to say Bruno Brooks. It's got a happy end. Bob Harris. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Harris won, and uh, you know, damages were awarded against Bruno Brooks, who appealed and still, you know, didn't get anywhere. 
And, uh, you know, so Bob Harris was the winner. And also, Bob Harris and then found himself rehabilitated by the BBC. I was going to say, you can hear Bob Harris on the radio. Oh, hey, I, I, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this. Matthew Bannister, when he was controller of Radio 1, fired a lot of people. And Matthew has actually told me that the only mistake he made was getting rid of Bob Harris. Because the people who listened to Bob Harris in Radio 1 on those days, in the middle of the night, were utterly devoted to mm. Bob Harris. Absolutely. Insomniacs, truck drivers, whatever. and sacks and He's sacks never done Harris. anything so wrong in his life, you know. So Bob Harris has come back, you know, in a big way. So, so he's, now got, he's still got his 33,000. Well, there's probably more than 33,000 now. But it's like losing limb and all your vital organs, isn't it? Yeah. That's 1991, 33,000 records. That would be joined by, yeah, quite But the irony would be, I suppose, if he had lost the court case, then the 33,000 hours would go to a man who didn't have any records at all. (laughs) 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 So now Bruno Brooks runs a radio company that broadcasts to chemists. All right. But special music chosen just for chemists? Yeah. I hear it occasionally. I go to Lloyd's Chemist at the top of my road. Do you just go into and there to is, about it? And they pops They have a large. They have a They have live piped radio into chemists. <laughs> going unmistakable voice of Bruno. Uh, no, I don't think he's on the air. He runs it. He's probably on the air. The doubters are the just hanging arounders. <laughs> 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 Radio one at that time, it really was like that. Yeah, well, it still is like that. Yeah. In the chemist, you know, yeah. that's where I advise you to go. And another one from the uh, associates, and this one's called those first impressions. Gonna start the guitar. That's why when we come back to the chemist again. Perfect. This podcast was brought to you by the Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.